Matthew 24, uh, reading verses 1 to 35. It's starting off just barely on page 700. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you not? Uh, sorry, do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. 
I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What do you think about the future of the world? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Uh, do you think, if you're an optimist, that uh, as we keep on progressing in terms of uh, better technologies, better science, uh, better medicine, as we keep on progressing our communities, uh, that uh, one day uh, humans will enjoy perfection, that uh, surely uh, continual improvement of things must arrive at that point of perfect uh, health, perfect comfort and perfect relationships. Uh, is that your view? Are you an optimist? Or are you a pessimist? Are you one of those people who uh, thinks that uh, it, it was always better in the old days uh, than what it is now? That uh, things are just getting worse? Do you have a bleak uh, view of the future of humanity? Well, scientists by the way, tell us that we should have a bleak view of the future of the Earth. Uh, they say that uh, uh, even if uh, humanity improves, that our planet will eventually die. It's, um, it's not prophecy, it's just science. They say that suns only last for a certain length of time uh, before the sun dies. And in about 500 million years from now, the uh, sun... Uh, and its changes will mean that our planet won't be able to sustain life anymore. And then they reckon in about 7.5 billion years from now that uh, for various reasons the planet won't exist. That's just science, it's not prophecy. Let me ask you a, a different question. Uh, what do you think about the future of the Christian church? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Uh, I read a... Um, pessimistic view on an online newspaper the other day, it was I think the, uh, the London Times, uh, where they said that uh, startling new research had uh, come to the conclusion that the Christian church in Britain had about 30 years to go, uh, that it would be replaced by different forms of spirituality. Sometimes we too can become discouraged by the state of the church. Uh, we look around and we see that there are so many church leaders who simply don't preach the gospel, uh, that there are so many church leaders who preach messages which are so different from the gospel that they're actually taking people away from Jesus. And uh, we find that difficult to deal with. Sometimes we find it hard to even just press on being Christians ourselves. Uh, when we're in the context of uh, difficulty and um, persecution and trials. So what is the future of the world and what is the future of the church? They're the two questions I'm laying on the table this morning. But here's the third one. Does it sound arrogant of me to be connecting the future of the church with something as profound and grand as the future of the entire planet? Uh, some people would say that that is arrogant, to say that somehow the, those two are connected. But yet, uh, that is not what the Bible says. Um, the Bible tells us that uh, our world is heading to an end point, but that our world will not be frozen 
because of the death of the sun that gives us warmth. Um, rather, the Bible speaks of a point in time when Jesus uh, will, will come back again and he will come in judgment and he will come to bring uh, the world as we know it to an end and to usher in a new age. Now, we have seen hints of this as we've been looking through Matthew's Gospel so far. You might recall uh, back in Matthew 13, which is the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, that um, uh, in that parable, Jesus said that at the end of the age, that the Son of Man would come, uh, would send out his angels in judgment. And so we've seen hints of this throughout Matthew's Gospel so far. Well, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus unpacks that. And in this chapter, we see that the future of the world and the future of the Christian church are in fact intertwined. Now, I must say that Matthew chapter 24 is not the easiest passage of the Bible to understand. Nor is it the easiest Bible to preach on, and I'm just wondering why it is that all of the really difficult passages never fall on Peter's, Peter's week to preach. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, I think the more difficult that a passage is to understand, the more interesting it is. Because as you dig into it, uh, then you're going to learn something. And uh, you, you're going to have a fresh uh, picture of, of God and his purposes. So let's launch into this chapter. But uh, let me set the context first. You might recall from last week and the week before that the context is that Jesus is inside the temple. And there have been some uh, verbal skirmishes between Jesus and the uh, religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the priests, and so on. There's been these skirmishes between Jesus and these people. And at the end of chapter 23, uh, if you have a look at that, Jesus actually lamented the spiritual state of Israel. Uh, Jesus said that Jerusalem's house is desolate. That is, the temple is a spiritual wasteland. But then you'll see that as he's walking away from the temple in chapter 24, verse 1, that uh, the disciples spoke to him and they called his attention to the buildings. You see that? Called their atten his attention to the buildings. Now, why do you reckon they did that? Well, uh, this incident is recorded in uh, several of the Gospels and the other Gospels give us a little bit more, fill in the, the gaps a bit. Uh, Mark, in his gospel, tells us what they said uh, when they drew his attention to the buildings. Uh, Mark says that, uh, that the disciples said to him, look at these massive stones and look at how, uh, at how beautiful, how impressive these buildings are. Now, why are they saying that to him? Well, I take it that what they're saying is this. Uh, they're saying, look, Jesus, it's not so bad. I mean, the spiritual leaders, they might be corrupt, but have a look at how beautiful the building is. That's what they're doing. They're actually trying to 
encourage Jesus. They're trying to get him to be a bit more upbeat about the temple. What a mistake that is. And friends, we too can make that mistake, can't we? Uh, in the world, you'll see that there are many, many absolutely architecturally beautiful cathedrals and uh, there are some incredibly uh, luxurious modern church buildings. And when we look at these places, we can think, wow, how impressive is that? But yet, if the gospel is not being preached in these places, then it doesn't matter how impressive or how beautiful they are, they are desolate. They are spiritually desolate unless they are used for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. And so, in verse 2, Jesus responds to them. Have a look at verse 2. He says, Do you see all these things? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, that is an extraordinary prediction. Jesus is, is predicting the, uh, the destruction of the temple. And so the disciples were a bit puzzled about that, and particularly they were puzzled to know, well, when is that going to happen? Uh, in verse 3, as they're together on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached Jesus, and they said to him, they asked him a couple of questions. Firstly, when will this happen? And secondly, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, you see in that that in the minds of the disciples, they are connecting the destruction of the temple with the second coming of Jesus. Uh, in their minds, they're part and parcel of the same event. Uh, they would think that after the temple's destroyed, well, surely that's when Jesus is going to return again. So they've connected the two events. And that is the issue which I believe that Jesus addresses here. In the rest of the chapter, in a nutshell, what he says to them is, no, there's actually going to be a period of time uh, between the destruction of the temple and the return or the coming of Jesus. There's a period of time. And moreover, that period of time is going to be characterised by trials and difficulties, uh, even persecution of Christians. Now, you see that in verses 4 through to 14. Uh, take a look at verse 4. That is where Jesus uh, begins to answer their question. And if you go down to verse 14, he says, and then the end will come. So there is this whole bunch of material between uh, that time and the coming or the end of uh, the age. Now, what should they expect during this lifetime? Well, have a look at, uh, at verses 4 through to 14. Uh, what they should expect in verse um, 5 is false Christs to come, people who claim to be the one worth following but who actually not. Uh, in verse 6, he says there's going to be wars and there's going to be rumours of wars during this time. Uh, he goes on to say that there's going to be famines, uh, there's going to be earthquakes 
that uh, Christians are going to be put to death, that uh, people will actually turn away from the faith, uh, that there will be false prophets and wickedness will replace love. There are some Christians who specialise in tracking world events uh, in order to try to predict uh, from various wars and famines and droughts and so on to try to predict when Jesus will actually come. I remember when America invaded Iraq that uh, there were uh, Christian people who were saying that that was actually predicted in the Bible and that it meant that Jesus was about to return, um, that uh, the big event was about to happen. But Jesus actually says the opposite to this because if you have a look in, again in verse 6, he says that uh, you shouldn't be alarmed when these things happened. Uh, these things don't mean that the end is about to come because he says the end is still to come. In fact, uh, in these verses, Jesus describes life in the era in which we live. Uh, in the period uh, between the resurrection of Jesus and his coming again. It, it's a description, friends, of life in a fallen world. Now, I can't imagine what it's like to uh, live through a war or a famine or an earthquake. There are many Christians who do live through wars, famines and earthquakes. Uh, I can't imagine what it's like to be persecuted in the in way that some Christians are persecuted and have been persecuted throughout history. But uh, the past 2,000 years uh, is littered with the bodies of, um, of martyrs, of Christians who've quite literally been killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess one, something which we can relate to a bit more is that uh, we see that there are false Christs. We see that there are false prophets, false teachers uh, who are in the churches today and who are seeking to lead astray uh, those who truly love Jesus. Now, when we see all of these things happening, it does not mean uh, that uh, the end is, is, is going to happen now, uh, nor does it mean that God's plan has somehow been thwarted. Because if you have a look in verses 13 and 14... In the midst of trials and difficulties, there are two things that happen. Number one, people who stand firm in the gospel are saved. Number two, the gospel continues to, uh, to expand. Uh, the gospel continues to be preached throughout the world. In fact, the end will only come... Um, as the gospel has been preached to every nation. The word in the Greek there is ethnos. It means to all peoples, uh, to all peoples in the world. So what Jesus is saying here is that there is a time lag and he won't say how long that time lags for. In fact, what we'll see in a couple of weeks' time is that there's a very good reason why he doesn't tell us when, Jesus, when he's going to come back again and that is because we need to be ready for him to come back at any time, right? Peter's going to preach on that one in a couple of weeks' time. But what he's also saying is that there's not only this time lag, but that 
we ought to expect that life will not necessarily be easy. Now, it's very helpful for us to understand this uh, because sometimes we can experience opposition and discouragement as Christians. I know that one of the most discouraging things that I experience as a Christian is this. Uh, It is when uh, people whom I've loved, people whom I've ministered to, people who I've taught the Bible to and prayed with and engaged in ministry with them, uh, and those people walk away from Jesus. Uh, For anyone who's got a real heart for people being saved and the glory of God there can be few things more disheartening uh, when uh, people walk away from Jesus I mean we love it when people become Christians don't we but when when someone who we thought was a Christian turns their back on God and often that is seen by them turning their backs on us because we represent God then that hurts uh, that is a terrible thing to happen. And when, that, when we find ourselves in that situation, we ought to remember the words of Jesus here and in other places. Because uh, when difficult and disappointing things happen, we should remember that Jesus said they would happen. That Jesus predicted that there would be people who would walk away. Uh, that there is nothing um, unusual about that. Uh, that God's plan hasn't been thwarted. That is the way things are this side of the second coming. And so therefore, even in those difficulties, what we need to do is not lose heart, but rather we need to press on uh, in godliness and press on in serving Christ. Now, the disciples needed to hear this message just as much as we do, but in one sense perhaps they needed to hear it even more. Uh, because in verses 15 through to 25, Jesus zeroes in on one event, a particularly violent event, which uh, 11 of those 12 disciples would uh, experience. Judas, of course, uh, did not experience this because he didn't live. Have a look at verse 15. In verse 15... Uh, Jesus says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight may not take place in winter or in the Sabbath. Uh, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and so on. Now, the abomination that causes desolation, it's not a term which we often use, uh, uh, but if you were here for the Daniel series, then you've heard that term, right? Uh, In a number of parts of Daniel, and uh, particularly in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, uh, the, the angel Gabriel... Uh, foretold a time when an abominable thing would be done uh, inside the temple. Now, uh, in one sense, uh, that is fulfilled uh, in the um, activities of a particularly wicked ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, uh, 
Uh, his name was Epiphanes because he thought that he was God. And uh, you may recall that uh, Antiochus uh, was one of the uh, kings from the Syrian side of the breakup of the Roman Empire, uh, the Seleucids. Uh, he had rule over, Jeru over, over Judea. And uh, he, uh, I, I guess at the climax, the pinnacle of his atrocities in terms of the Jewish faith was that he slaughtered a pig and sacrificed it on the, on the altar in the temple. Now, to any Jew, that is an abominable thing to have done. It doesn't get any lower than that. Uh, it seems to me also that uh, this uh, abomination that causes desolation points us to another event, and that is to the death of Christ on the cross uh, as a sacrifice. For although Christ's death achieves our forgiveness, paying our debt, there can be nothing more ab abominable than that the Son of God should be uh, stripped, beaten, um, and whipped, and nailed to a crucifix to take upon himself the sin of, of the world. That is an abomination. However, in Matthew 24, the question Jesus is answering is about the destruction of the temple. And I think that that's uh, the context here, and that's how we ought to understand the abomination. In Luke's account of this event, Luke records more of what Jesus said. So in Luke chapter 21, verse 20, uh, Jesus said, to the disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that its desolation is near. And uh, indeed, such an event would ultimately lead to the devastation of the temple. In 66 AD, the Roman army um, laid siege to Jerusalem. The siege went on for four years. Uh, they surrounded Jerusalem and they blockaded the city. Uh, they wouldn't let anyone in to the city and for a while they wouldn't let anyone out. That meant that uh, there was no food being supplied to the city. Uh, their strategy was to starve the population to death. The first century non-Christian historian Josephus recorded that 1,100,000 residents of Jerusalem perished. Now, we can't vouch for the accuracy of, what, of his numbers. Um, you know, what he says isn't scriptural, but that's what the non-Christian historian wrote. 1,100,000 people dead. Uh, there are appalling stories uh, of what happened when people uh, got to that desperate stage of being so um, overcome by hunger uh, that uh, there was cannibalism that was taking place inside Jerusalem. You see, the dis when the siege finally ended uh, in 70 AD, the Romans uh, destroyed the temple completely. 
that was the temple that the disciples had been so impressed by and how magnificent their buildings were but if you were to go to Jerusalem today and I know some of you have been there what will you see left of the temple Mark and Lauren you ought to know the answer to this what's left of the temple a wall and some steps that's it the wailing wall is all that's remained and the temple has never been rebuilt uh, in all of that time. Uh, some of the early church historians, like a fellow by the name of Eusebius, uh, what they record uh, is that the Christians, uh, when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, that the Christians took their cue from Jesus and left. <laughs> They took their cue from this passage, from what Jesus is saying here. They fled the city and the Christians were spared. See, in verse 25, Jesus said, See, I've told you all of this ahead of time. And in verse 34, he specifically says that all these things would happen in their lifetime. Now, I take it that that means all these things, but not the actual second coming, of course. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, in a sense, illustrates Jesus' point that the era between the resurrection and the day of judgment uh, is not going to be all, always rosy. Uh, it'll be difficult. We, we still live in a fallen world. There is suffering this side of heaven. Christians get caught up in wars, in earthquakes, in famines, uh, in sickness and, of course, in death. And with that in mind, I think it's worth um, reflecting on the fact that there are Christians who teach that when you become Christ a Christian, that all of your problems are going to be over, that Jesus is the great panacea to all of life's problems, that uh, God wants his people to always be healthy and wealthy uh, this side of heaven. But that is not the teaching here. That is not the teaching here. Uh, heaven is the place where there will be no more tears. Uh, this side of heaven, there will be tears. In fact, Jesus says in verse 29 that it is immediately after the distress of those days, uh, that is the period in which we are now in, that Jesus will come again. So the timetable is the destruction of the temple... Um, symbolising uh, the difficulties of life in this age, uh, life will continue to be difficult until such time as Jesus comes again. And uh, that was the question that the disciples asked. When is the temple going to be destroyed and will, when will you come? Now, um, this might seem academic but, um, to you, but there is a practical reality here. There are some Christians, and I've met several of them, who would describe themselves as being um, uh, post-millennial reconstructionists, I think is the term. And there's a good number of Presbyterians uh, who actually hold this view. And what they say is that, um, that before Jesus returns that there is going to be a period of 1,000 years where 
everything is going to improve and where uh, lots, I think that some would say even everybody living at that time is going to become Christians. And when that happens, that Jesus returns. That's not what you see here, is it? It's the, the resurrection of Jesus, the period in which we're now in, which is characterised by trials and difficulties, and then the return of Jesus. Now, notice how his coming is described. I'm going to pick it up at verse 29. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Uh, that is kind of like a, uh, an apocalyptic way of describing judgment. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, that kind of language is used in other parts of the New Testament to describe the second, the second coming of Jesus. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verse 7, uh, when Paul speaks of the day of judgment, uh, he, he says this, he says, this will happen uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. It's clearly talking about the second coming of Jesus and it's clearly using the same kind of language as we see here. Paul goes on to say that those who do not know, um, uh, who do not believe in the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of his glory forever. But he goes on in 2 Corinthians to say that there are some people who, even at that time, had claimed that Jesus had already returned, that Jesus had somehow returned secretly that nobody knew about it except these special people who taught that Jesus had returned. Uh, you see that in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. He goes on to say to the Thessalonians, look, don't worry about that because it's not true. Uh, he is yet to return. But again, in our own day, there are people who say the same thing. I don't know if you realise this or not, but the Jehovah's, the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, this is what they say. Uh, in the 19th century, their leader predicted that uh, through calculations that he'd made, done throughout the Bible, that Jesus was going to return in 1914. Now, 1914 clicked over to 1915 and still no Jesus. So what did they say? Did they repent? Did they say, we were wrong? No. They modified the doctrine and said, well, actually, he has returned. Uh, it's just that he returned in secret. He returned in spirit. Uh, and, um, but friends, uh, when Jesus returned, there's not going to be any secrets about it. Uh, when Jesus returns, it's going to be plain to everybody because it will be the day of judgment. So what do you think of the future of the world and of the church? Are you a pessimist 
or are you an optimist? What should we Christians be? Should we be pessimistic about the future of the world and the church? Or should we be optimists? Well, in respect to the world, we should be both, surely. Uh, In a sense, we should be pessimists. For we know that there will never be a utopia in this age. That uh, even though science and technology might advance and improve life, that we still live in a fallen world. And as we look to the future, uh, we ought to expect that there will be wars, uh, that there will be famines, there will be droughts. We ought to expect uh, that uh, there will be suffering because there is sin in the world. That the ploughshares will not be beaten, um, rather the swords will not be beaten to ploughshares in this age. And so we are pessimists in that sense. But we are also the great optimists. Because the message of the Bible gives us great hope for the future. For it tells us that there is a day uh, which God has appointed to judge this world and he does so uh, through his son, Jesus. That uh, this world with its sin and corruption is heading to a particular end point and that end point is the return of Christ. When Jesus will come when Jesus will do away with this world, with its sin and corruption, when Jesus will usher in the new age. And so therefore, what kind of people should we be? Well, we should be faithful people. We should be men and women who stand firm for Christ uh, through whatever trials that we find ourselves in. Uh, A couple of days ago, a friend of mine died. Now, let me tell you about this friend. Uh, He was in his 80s, a godly Christian man. And uh, I only got to know him in the last few years of his life uh, because I was helping him uh, and others as his church went through some terrible difficulties caused by sin, sin that had infected the church. And this, uh, this godly, elderly man took a stand. He took a stand for godliness. And because he did that, he found that he was being attacked and insulted Uh, You would expect that to come from people outside of the church, but no, it was coming from people inside the church who were prepared to tolerate sin as he was not. Now, in that context, um, particularly with the frailty of his age, uh, you could understand that he might buckle under, that he might say, well, look, this is all getting a bit too much for me. Um, I don't think I'll be a leader in this church anymore. Um, I'll give up that role and I'll go and spend my days playing golf and lawn bowls or whatever his arthritis would let him do, right? He could have done that. Or he could have said, oh, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just too hard. You don't want to see a church divided, etc. And I can't cop all of this criticism and so on. So I'll just back off and, and not do anything about this sin. I saw him in that context 
i saw the way that he was reviled i read the letters that were written to him but i also saw that he was gracious forgiving loving and above all that he was a man who was as solid as a rock for the gospel and as solid as a rock in terms of standing up for what was right what was honoring to god and so he didn't buckle and the reason is this he was a man who lived with two expectations firstly he expected that there's going to be trials and difficulties in this world and that as christians that we're going to experience those trials and difficulties he expected that there is sin in this world and even in the church that was the first thing the second thing is that he expects the lord jesus christ to return again one day that he expects that his future is bound up in the new age the heavenly age which he most certainly will enjoy. And I want to say that uh, if you take anything from this passage, that's the kind of people we need to be. Because uh, of what Jesus himself says, uh, that uh, Jesus himself says that those who stand to the end will be saved. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for uh, the fact that you are in control of this world and that you have a plan uh, for this world. We thank you that the Lord Jesus will return again one day, that he will bring an end to sin and suffering, that he will usher in the new age, the heavenly age, where there will be no more tears. Father, we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come is our prayer. But we pray for ourselves that in the meantime that uh, you would shield and protect us, that you would strengthen us as we seek to live as godly people uh, in a fallen world. Help us to be men and women who take a stand for the gospel, who take a stand for, uh, for righteousness, uh, irrespective of what it might cost us. For we know the cost that you have paid in the person of your only Son, our Lord Jesus, who has died for our sin, who has risen from the grave, and who will return again one day. We pray this in his name. Amen.